Well. It's taking me significantly longer to get in the car this morning for some reason. Okay. So this week, I am excited about for a number of reasons. And mostly one of the main reasons is because this is something that, like I said last week, a lot of my close friends and associates are interested in and excited to, to hear because I have been anticipating this particular episode and because I am interested in seeing how concise I can be. Lost my badge. Here it is. So, for those of you who uh, this is your first time listening, welcome to Ride Along. This is the podcast that I record on my drive home from work on my phone. So, the audio quality, I know it is what it is. Some plans in the works for some external microphones and other equipment to improve that experience for you guys make it more um, tolerable to listen to at least from an audio standpoint and last week so okay so I published a blog trying to figure out how much context I need to give first time listeners start from the top. My name's Anthony. This is Ride Along, my weekly podcast, somewhat weekly podcast that I record on the way home from work. I also blog semi-regularly at a project that I'm working on with my friends called Appalachian Roundtable. You can find our Facebook page, Appalachian Roundtable, and our website is theappalachianroundtable.com. That's where we blog. You'll find links to this show and other shows you'll find some really cool some other content some ways to reach out and connect with the work that we're doing there which is not altogether separate but is distinct from what i'm doing here at ride along last week on appalachian roundtable i published the first of a two-part series on why i became a presbyterian the reason that i did it was not because I think that I'm a great Presbyterian apologist, but because I think, well, for first of all, because I know that a lot of, uh, I knew a lot of people that I was close to that were in my circles were going to have a lot of questions about why I made that switch, why, you know, what convinced me, what were my arguments, what were the arguments that swayed me, and I didn't want to have to answer those same questions a hundred different times. So I thought a good resource would be I could put it into a blog and I could put it into a podcast. Secondly, because I think that the theological journey that people go on is a real... It's all very fascinating to me to see where people land. I can't think of anyone 
in my life personally who today as an adult is where they were theologically, you know, 10 years ago or theologically what, you know, the culture of their home. Um, everybody, all Christians, theology, it, it, it moves and it, your convictions, they move and they sway and they bend based upon life experiences and, and based upon, um, just different. There's so many different factors that change your theology. It's not a pure science. There is a, a personal aspect to it. And so last week what I did was go over personally what happened to me as I became a as I became a Presbyterian. And that's not to say that truth is relative. Truth is definitely objective. And that's not to say that because you've experienced, because certain experiences lead you to conviction, that that means that that conviction is correct or is is the right, the right thing to be convicted about. It just means that we are complex creatures. We're not purely logical. We have emotions. We have traditions. We have sentimentality that changes the way we view the world. And I think it's ignorant to assume that those things don't impact the way that you view scripture. Try as you might to be a purist, try as you might, which I think is a good thing to strive for, to strive to, to understand the scriptures as they are, without any baggage or any other filter to read them. It's just not, it's just not reasonable, because we're complex creatures. So, I, because, because I think that that's such an interesting aspect of people's lives, I just wanted to share my own, and if people find it helpful, that is a that's a bonus, you know. Um, and also, because I don't believe in being um, diplomatic, I don't believe in not shooting straight about what my motives are. I just we just I just needed content for roundtable. I needed to write about something. I needed to practice writing. I needed to to have that outlet. So that's why I, that's why I did it. So last week what I did was I published a blog that I'd written a number of months ago, finally published it on, as I said, personally what happened to me and how I became a Presbyterian just in my personal life. Then I recorded a ride-along that accompanied that. And I got to talk about things on ride-along that I didn't get to write about and because it's a different medium and so there's different points that I could stress and different points that I could discuss. So if you've not read either article or if you've not listened to last week's Ride Along, I would encourage you to do that. You don't necessarily have to listen to it before you listen to this one. They're not chronological. They are, it's just a different, a different perspective. So read both articles, listen to, be sure to listen to last week's also. So where last week's was more personal, this week's I wanted to be more theological. And I know that I don't have as much time as I need. So in a weird way, last week when I recorded Ride Along, I had I could talk about more uh, in Ride Along than I could blog about. And this week I have uh, I have the cover less ground. Just because it's a different different way to communicate. So I've been trying to think about how I could break down, like what would be two points that I could break down 
that swayed me to become uh, towards Presbyterianism. To have my sons baptized in November. To abandon the Credo Baptist position and embrace the the infant baptism, Pedo Baptist position. And I don't have. Uh, I'm not going to read read my Bible or or look at notes as I'm driving because that's stupid. But I can think of one thing. The first thing that comes to my mind is the nature of the covenant. A lot of this, if you are new to theology, if you have never studied theology, if it, a lot of the language, a lot of the stuff is going to sound really dense and is going to sound really heady and you're not going to know what certain words mean. And I would like to, at some point, get into some more of that. But today is not the day. And so, for good or for ill, uh, some of you guys are just going to have to play catch-up or be left in the dust. So, the first the first thing for me, kind of theologically, that had to happen was I had to get my head around the nature of the new covenant. I talked last week about how I was a dispensationalist. I saw that there were two entities. There's the, there Israel and the church as two separate groups. When I realized that it was one group, I had to figure out the nuts and the bolts of how covenants operated in Scripture. I had to figure out, were they progressive, like the dispensations of Ryrie and Schofield, where um, they all build on top of another, and so they're all different, and God operates differently in each dispensation, or He operates differently in each covenant. Was that the case? Was it true that the new covenant instituted by Christ is a completely different covenant than the one given to Abraham or the one given to Moses or the one given to David? Or is it true that there's one overarching covenant of redemption that finds its home in the covenant of grace and that covenant of grace is administered differently? And the two that I really ended up wrestling with was, is the new covenant now, the one issue that really hung me up for a long time, was is the new covenant now comprised of only regenerate elect Christians, or is it a mixed covenant of Christians and, non, and, and non-Christians in the salvific sense? So is it mixed up between regenerate and unregenerate? And for a long time, I held that, well, obviously, it must be only regenerate. Only the regenerate are in the new covenant. And my argument, my thinking was, because the new covenant is something entirely different, entirely new from the old, and the thing that makes it new is that when you're in the covenant, you're regenerate. You're one of the elect. The problem I found myself running into, though, was I didn't know what to do with texts like Romans 11. I didn't know what to do with the apostasy passages of Hebrews. I didn't know what to do with John 15. So, John 15... Jesus says he's the vine, we're the branches. 
and there are branches that bear fruit and there are branches that do not bear fruit. The branches that do not bear fruit are cut off and thrown in the fire. That's a problem if you believe that the covenant is only comprised of regenerate persons. Now the argument, and I've conceded this in my article, is that Jesus is not necessarily using covenantal language there. He's not being explicit in that he's talking about the covenant or covenantal people. And I think that that's a fair that's a fair point. Jesus isn't speaking. He isn't using covenantal terms there. But there, the Jesus' point in that text is there is a sense, there is a way that you are connected to Jesus and don't bear fruit and are cut off and thrown in the fire, which is judgment language. language. That's language of judgment. That's language of of hell, of being judged to the hellfire. So it then if it's if it's not covenant, then in what way can you be connected to Jesus? Well, if it's not covenant, the only other option that I see is that it's salvation. That you are connected to Jesus in a way that is salvific. However, that's a problem, theologically, for me at least, for Calvinists, because you believe, as a Calvinist, that you cannot lose your salvation. If you believe in the doctrines of, of grace and you believe in perseverance of the saints, then you believe that the elect can't lose their salvation. In the words of John MacArthur, if you could lose it, you would so the connection can't be salvation in John 15. It can't be faith. It can't be talking about justification because there's a way that you could be a branch that doesn't bear fruit that gets cut off. So what is that? What is that way? What does that what does that mean? What does that what does that look like if it's not covenant? So that's how I've deduced that Jesus is talking about the covenant people. In Romans 11, Paul talks about the Gentiles are being grafted into a tree. Gentiles, he calls wild olive shoots, or maybe wild olive branches. But at any rate, they're grafted into a natural tree. A natural tree that pre-exists the New Testament. So there's a tree that already exists, and you have these a bundle of branches... And they are grafted into and they become part of this tree. That's important for me for two reasons. First of all, it's important because that that helped uh, keep my dispensationalism at bay. That helped me see that it's one people of God and that the Gentiles are included in Old Testament promises. That they are the people of God. However, that text also talks about branches being cut off from the tree. And he talks about how the natural branches were not spared. So the even, even the old covenant Jews, okay, they were not spared for their 
ethnicity. They weren't spared from being cut off from the tree. They weren't spared from being removed from the covenant for their unbelief. And so the warning from Paul in Romans is, neither will you, Gentiles, neither will you be spared because you're not even a natural branch. So don't take for granted that because you've been grafted in, that that somehow means you're exempt from, from warnings. Okay? And then all the texts in Hebrews that warn about falling away made a lot of sense to me when I was an Arminian. But the doctrines of grace are from Genesis to Revelation. If you're a convinced Calvinist, you have to wrestle with passages that deal with apostasy, that deal with falling away. So you have to deal with, I think it's in Hebrews 10. I might be wrong, but I think it's in Hebrews 10 where the author of Hebrews says that it's more severe for a man to trample underfoot the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. So there's a there's a man in this little illustration from Hebrews. There is a man sanctified by the blood of the covenant. It's the blood of Christ. That's new. It's the new covenant. And the man is sanctified. He is set apart. He is said to be holy because of the blood of the covenant. He tramples it under his foot. And his punishment, the one that was sanctified by the blood, his punishment is more severe than someone who never partook, who never had anything to do with the covenant. Okay. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is warning again Gentiles. And in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says to Gent, he's writing to the Corinthian church, primarily a Gentile church, as Pastor Will, uh, William Shishko points out in his baptism series, which if you've not listened to, I recommend two resources right off the bat to anybody dealing with trying to think through these issues. The first resource that I recommend somebody go to is find the debate between James White and Bill Shishko on the issue of baptism. When I was a Baptist, I watched that debate and said, Shishko ate White's lunch. Like, there's no... It's. It, I think it's White's worst... I think it's James White's worst performance. He's had hundreds of moderated debates, and I think his debate with Bill Shishko on the issue of baptism is his worst performance. So watch that debate, and then go find William Shishko's... I'll try to leave links in the show notes. Find William Shishko, Shishko's 20-some-plus series on, on Christian baptism. Anyways, he points, he points out that Paul is writing primarily to a, Gent, to a Gentile church, and he says to Gentiles, your fathers are the ones that rebelled and fell in the wilderness. So you're, you're a Gentile. Imagine this. You're a first, second century Christian. I don't know when Corinthians was written. You're a first, second, third century Christian. Or imagine you're a 21st century Christian. And you read, the, you, read, you read Exodus. You read the book of Exodus and you read about the, the raising up of Moses and you read, about the, you read about the plagues and you read about Moses interceding for, 
Israel and praying for Israel and asking God to spare Israel. And, and you read about Israel walking through the wilderness and God provides them with food and God provides them with water. He provides them with shelter. He guides them. He, he protects them. And they fall in the wilderness because of their idolatry. Okay, and a whole new generation takes over. You read that whole story of Genesis, and Paul says, those are your fathers. Those are, that's your tribe. Those are your people that went through all. Those aren't just stories that you can read and, and learn from, right? Paul's not saying like, Paul isn't saying, Remember what happened in um, in the Exodus account. Remember that, and that's like a story for you to have some to understand morality or to understand idolatry. No, Paul says, don't be like your fathers, the Gentile church, who disobeyed and fell. So he's connect there again. The Gentiles, non-Jews, are connected to the Old Testament. They're connected to the Old Testament promises and are now connected to, again, connected to Old Testament. Not only Old Testament judgment, but a specific historical judgment that came across flesh and blood Israelites. And in that same chapter, Paul says that Israel drank the same drink from the spiritual rock, and, and that rock was Christ. They partook of the same food. They partook of the same drink. And what did they partake in? Who did they partake in? Your fathers, Gentile, in Israel, partook of Christ. Specifically. Specifically. The water that they drank from the spiritual rock. And that rock was Christ. And then in Jude, speaking again about Exodus, in Jude, we read that it was not only Jesus that saved and rescued people from Israel, but it was also, I think it's like verse 5, it was also Jesus that struck them down for disobedience, that judged them. So here's the, here are, here are two texts in the New Testament that look at an old, a historical event of old. Not a prophetic text, not a psalm, not a something that's up for interpretation in that way, but a historical account. And both texts connect Gentiles to it. And Paul tells us that they partook of Christ, and Jude tells us that it was Jesus that saved them from Pharaoh and struck them down in the desert. Okay? I mean... This is just one of those things that, for me, I, it, I cannot unsee these things. I can't unconnect these dots in my mind, try as I might. I cannot unconnect these points from each other. So, all of that to say, that's really was two things, was... That the new covenant is comprised of, for the new covenant, I think the the New Testament is clear, is comprised of regenerate and unregenerate persons. 
it can't, it, it's not faith. If faith, if saving faith is what connects you to the new covenant, John 15 doesn't make any sense. Romans 11 doesn't make any sense. The apostasy passages of Hebrew don't make any sense. There's no reason to be warned about falling away. There's no reason to be warned about it because it can't actually happen if the connection is saving faith. And there's no reason for Paul or Jude to warn us from falling away like Israel did. Because now we're in a new covenant, we're in a new thing altogether, and our connection is by saving faith. And the connection cannot be saving faith if you want to reconcile the texts. If you're trying to reconcile these, these other New Testament texts. I've heard some possibilities. One of them I've already mentioned in passing is that these are possible... These are... Oh, I just lost it. Oh, they're warning against something that's impossible. That doesn't make any sense. Oh, they're... Um, these, God uses these warnings to prevent the impossible of the elect falling away. That doesn't make any sense. I'm reminded of Jesus when he talks about the end days and he's describing the Antichrist and he said um, that he would deceive, if possible, the elect. But it's not possible. That, that sort of deception is not possible. So that sort of falling away isn't even possible. Why would I warn people against it? Okay. So, what then is the entrance into the covenant? Well, if it's a, if it's the same way that God for 2,000 years prior administered covenant signs and seals and blessings, it's by household. You into your household, to you into your household, to you into your household. God makes a promise with, makes a covenant with Noah, his family comes into the ark. God makes a promise with Abraham, his whole, uh, all of his offspring are then circumcised, are then given the sign. Peter, in his, in one of his letters, says that the floodwaters in Genesis and baptism correspond. Okay? So, God makes a promise with Noah, baptizes his family. Okay? Paul says that when Israel walked through the Red Sea, that they were baptized into Moses. Okay? And so, so there's a, there's a baptism of these a million Jews, I think it is. That's probably how exaggerated. I don't know how many it was, but they leave Egypt and they, the Red Sea is parted. And as they walk through the Red Sea, Paul says they are baptized into Moses. And we know, we know that there are children being baptized because earlier in Exodus, when Moses is trying to convince Pharaoh to let the people go. And Pharaoh seems to be relenting a little bit. Pharaoh says, fine, 
take your take your adults but leave your children. And so Pharaoh's trying to negotiate so that the Israel's the so that Israel doesn't doesn't up and leave him because then he doesn't have a workforce, right? And so Pharaoh says, leave leave the kids behind. And Moses doesn't Moses doesn't have it, and then Israel, and then Pharaoh says, fine, then no one's going. But the point being, we know that there were kids in that crowd who are being baptized into Moses. And who and the and the and the people that were baptized into Moses, who is the representative of that that covenant administration, the people who were baptized into Moses fall in the wilderness and were struck down by Jesus. So all of that to say that the the biggest thing that I had to get over and have now resolved theologically and exegetically was is who's in who is a part of the new covenant. And I don't see how it could be only the regenerate. It just doesn't it doesn't compute with me at this point. There are other points that I could talk about. There are other texts that I could I could get into. But you can tell I'm tired. But really it came down to that that issue and then the question of if it's not faith, then what is it? How do you, how are you connected? To the covenant, and if the covenant signs were always given by household, and if that's how you are connected to the covenant, because Paul talks about being baptized into Christ in at least one place, he says, "As you are baptized into Christ," he also says that if you are in Christ, you, if you are in Christ, you're a descendant of Abraham. You're Abraham's descendants, father Abraham, and many sons, many sons and father Abraham. That's what that song means. I always sing that song about Nazarene. Um, yeah, oh gosh, I would sing that at my Nazarene VBS. They had didn't. They had no idea what covenant theology was. They sang father Abraham and many sons. I'm one of them. So are you. So, I'm really excited about this one because I don't have very many opportunities throughout the week or in my life to talk about theology uninhibited. I mean, I have friends that I sort of text and talk about different things, but I don't have very many outlets to just walk through something theologically. So, I hope that this is helpful, if for no other reason than to... I hope it does two things. I hope it gives you a perspective of how Presbyterians understand covenant. So, I'm not, I'm not a scholar. I haven't even been Presbyterian for a year, but I've wrestled with this stuff and thought through this, th- this thing since before I was married. Before we were married, before we were having kids, I was like, man, I don't know. We need to figure this out. And it wasn't until we had our second that I figured it out. 
Um, so I hope that this is helpful to give you perspective. Anyways, I'll, anyways, I hope this is helpful to give you perspective on um, some Presbyterian understanding, at least. And I hope that this is helpful if for if if these blogs and these podcasts do nothing else but convince readers and listeners that they need to read their Bibles more and that they need to know what they believe about what the Bible says. If this does nothing else other than that, I will be satisfied. I will be pleased. And I forget where I heard it or where I read it, but if you're really discouraged and you feel like you don't know much about the Bible and you don't know much about theology and that's kind of like a turnoff, that's a discouragement from you, the best way for you to know your Bible is to read it. That's not original to me. I just don't remember who said it. But the best way to know your Bible is to read it. If you're not picking it up and reading it, you're not going to know it. And the thing of it is, is that the whole Christian message, the whole gospel message is an, is an invitation to come to Jesus. That's the whole message, is to come to Jesus. Jesus says to bring your burdens to him and his his yoke is easy and it is light and and they and 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 God wants you to present yourself to him as a living sacrifice and God wants God the Father so desperately wants you to come to him. So he he's God's not going to shame you or look down on you or or put you down for for not understanding what you're reading. God just wants you to open your Bible and read it and understand it to the best of your ability. The Westminster Confession of Faith, I don't know it off the top of my head verbatim, but it essentially says that the scriptures are, are set in such a way that the simplest person can read the scriptures and understand basic gospel truths. Just basic gospel truths. And so, if none of this does anything else other than encourage people to read their Bibles more, I'm fine with that. And I hope this does it for you. I hope it is for you. However, if you listen to this and this podcast or something that I wrote becomes the nail in the coffin for you, that, oh, well, I wasn't Presbyterian, or I was on the fence, and then I read Anthony's things, and I listened to what he said, and I couldn't argue with him. I mean, that, oh, that would be even cooler. No, it wouldn't be even even cooler than you reading your Bible more, but it would be, um, I would be very honored if you uh, became Presbyterian, because it's something that I said. If I was, if I helped you along the way. So, at any rate... Um, thanks for listening. Thanks for sticking with me from last week to this week. I hope that you read those blogs. I hope that you listen to that last podcast. And I hope that this is helpful. And I hope that you've enjoyed it. At least, I hope you've gotten a little bit out of it. You've gotten something out of it. Um, don't forget to look up Appalachian Roundtable on Facebook. Don't forget to find our website, theappalachianroundtable.com. We are working on 
some more content, some more podcasts. We, I am trying to write some more. I'm trying to think and collaborate with some other thinkers and some other writers about some ideas of things that we could be posting. It's just really difficult. We've just be praying for us. Be praying for the work at, at Roundtable because we've really, um, we really do want it to to succeed and do well, but we're still just in those early, early months of trying to figure it all out and try to balance work and blogs and podcasts and, and web design and production and that sort of thing. So be praying for us, but thanks again for listening guys.